there were plenty of places where I would have reasonably believed this is just not going to work out the way I wanted it to. But if I had stopped there, I would have missed out on this, this incredible career that I've been building. You're listening to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast, the only leadership podcast run by undergraduate students dedicated to helping undergraduate students lead in diverse fields. From people in diplomacy to entertainment, from CEOs to student leaders, we feature people from all walks of life. It's all part of the mission. Here at the Piscina Leadership Institute, we make leaders better. Welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. My name is Kai DeJesus and I'll be your host. Today, we welcome Kelly Hall Tompkins as our guest. Kelly Hall Tompkins began her violin studies when she was only nine, and from there, it was onward and upward for her. She has appeared as a co-soloist in Carnegie Hall, in London at Queen Elizabeth Hall, at Lincoln Center, and with the symphonies of Baltimore, Dallas, Jacksonville, Oakland, recitals in Paris, New York, Toronto, Washington, Chicago, and festivals of Tanglewood, Ravinia, Santa Fe, France, Germany, and Italy. She held the role as Fiddler slash Violin Solos in a production of Fiddler on the Roof that was nominated for both Grammys and Tonys. She even developed the Fiddler Extending Tradition, the first Fiddler solo disc only containing new arrangements. Paul Tompkins also founded Music Kitchen Food for the Soul, which brings chamber music performances to homeless shelters across the country. She also speaks eight languages. Kelly Hall Tompkins, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Kai. Great to be with you. So I just mentioned that you started in violin when you were only like nine years old. Can you talk about that start, especially as someone so young? Well, actually, in my field, that's <clears throat> considered relatively late, but I am really proud of the fact that I chose it on my own. I think a lot of kids start because they have a parent that says that they should do it, and they may start that at a, at a younger age, you know, five, six, seven, eight. Um, but I was really drawn to music. I think I sifted music out of my environment wherever it was found. Um, I was... I grew up Lutheran, so I grew up hearing the music of Bach, like the Baroque music of Bach and, and other composers in the church. And then I also grew up on Saturdays watching Warner Brothers cartoons. And I always loved that uh, original and also classical music that I heard there. And finally, one day, my elementary school took us to hear the local symphony, and I was absolutely transfixed. And when a string quartet followed up and, and played at my elementary school, I said, oh, no, that's that's what I want to do. I want to play the violin. So can you like talk about more, like why the violin specifically? You know, I think I, I identify with the higher register, even though my, my speaking voice is um, probably more like an alto voice. I just identify instrumentally with the, the melodic line, the line that, that can fly, the line that's virtuosic, the line that is expressive the line that is uh, that has a leadership role. I think all of those things really appealed to me. Although I really love the bass line, um, I love the cello, I would I didn't feel myself as a cellist. I felt that my natural voice is sort of like the Harry Potter sorting hat. You know, mm-hmm. um, if the sorting hat were sitting on me, it, it just uh, identified me as an upper register, melodic, you know. So is it like an intrinsic thing? Like you just, just clicked in you? It just clicked in me. It was it was where my passion was. Uh, it's it's what I love most to express the high line. So to most of the people that I interview, you stand out and be a leader by speaking up, even if you're not the leader. But obviously, in an orchestra or band, if you play too loud, you just overpowered the rest of the band. 
So how then do you be, do you be a leader? How do you reconcile the idea of being a leader in a place where you're not really supposed to stand out because then you're not being conducive to the entire roof thing? Right. Well, you know, early on, um, I, I also like being part of a group, but early on I started winning roles as concertmaster, which means it's the leader of the string orchestra, the string section, and, and in a sense, leader of the entire orchestra next to the conductor. So it is the role that plays all the solos. When there are solos written for violin in an orchestra, that is the concertmaster's role to play them. It is the concertmaster's role to determine how the music should go after, you know, second to the conductor's authority, the, the concertmaster sort of decides the phrasing and the bowings that the rest of the section will, will adhere to. So it really is, um, the violinist is the only role that can play that. You know, the, the violin player, the, the concertmaster is the only one, or I should say the violin, a violinist is the only one who can play the role as concertmaster, which is a leadership role. And, but then I decided that, that a career in an orchestra was not first and foremost what I wanted to do. And I left my orchestral career to be a soloist. And so that is the ultimate, you know, kind of leadership role in choosing the pieces that I want to play and how I want them to, to be played. And, um, you know, the orchestra is a partner then in following my interpretation. And I really enjoy collaborating that way. So what came first for you? Like taking on these roles as concertmaster or like the internal, I have to be a leader or I have to step up in feeling side of you? The, the role as concertmaster is usually granted by audition to the person who wins that seat and that strong, you know, the strongest player in certain circumstances. And that started happening for me when I was 13 years old. So really only uh, four years after I started, I was the concertmaster of the junior all-state orchestra in my state of South Carolina. And I think that was the first time I did the concertmaster role. And then um, I became concertmaster of my youth orchestra. And then I was concertmaster of the senior all-state orchestra in South Carolina and, um, and many places after that. I'm also a musician. I had piano lessons for like 10 years. And my teacher constantly drilled me how like playing piano, playing music, that's supposed to help you in your real life or just somewhere outside of music. What are your take on this? How has music helped you outside of just playing music? You know, I, I'm, I'm definitely one of those people that thinks that music has intrinsic value in and of itself. And it's not just to facilitate other things, but it is true that um, I, I believe it is true that artists in general and probably musicians in particular use a larger portion of our, of our brain capacity because it's the creative side in addition to the analytical logical side. You know, the left brain is the, you know, the part that determines, uh, you know, quantitatively how much, when, and just, you know, just the, the more logistical side of ourselves, of which violin playing very much is also. But in addition to that, it's very conceptual. It's very creative. Um, it's a very right-brained activity. And I think um, that having that sense of awareness brings itself to other aspects of your life, you know, being able to think creatively, um, problem solving, um, the ability to just find a, a higher level of, um, you know, of, of our mind's existence, you know, the, the realms of joy and transcendence and all of the things that music expresses so much beyond words. I mean, I'm a person who loves words, but music expresses things well beyond words. And I think it's a syntax and a language. Um, so I think it expands our, our human capacity in that way. 
you know, I, I, I do think it does lend itself to concentration and um, focus and, you know, being a musician and really focusing for really a lifelong endeavor is quite a commitment and it's, it's quite an endurance feat. And I think it's one that can lend itself to other, other tasks and other endeavors. But I think the level of focus and, and improvement that we commit ourselves to and that we learn how to accomplish as children, definitely, you know, it definitely relates to other fields as well. So you mentioned that people that are in creative fields use more of their brain. If someone is interested, but doesn't really know how to like get creative, because I think we've also mentioned it's, it's very conceptual. How does one start? Well, I think the most important thing is to start with things you're passionate about. If it's drawing, then, you know, then drawing, or if it's musical, then take lessons, you know, dance. I mean, I think that, or acting, I think that becoming the idea of, of being able to put your creative passion into something that's meaningful for you is a very, very powerful vehicle. So you have to first identify what that might be and then go for it. So I've also mentioned earlier your work in like performing chamber music to the homeless. Can you talk about the origin of this idea and why you were drawn to this cause specifically? Yes. Yeah, so I I think I I come from a stock of of givers and and sort of generous people. Uh, learning you know from my grandmother, my mom. Um, I never really made an exact connection, but my grandmother actually uh, until really not too long ago, she's 96 now until she was 89 or 90. She used to feed the homeless, uh, at regular intervals every, every couple of weeks, she and her, um, her friends would, would cook meals on, on the weekends. And that kind of thing has just always sort of been part of my consciousness. But in my specific profession, you know, I, I never really had a sense that I would be able to give back. And then one year in 2004, I was preparing for concerts I usually like to play my music through for people in advance and I couldn't find my regular colleagues and friends available that at that particular moment. So as a volunteer cook for the homeless shelter at my church, as I was at the time, I decided to play for the, the men at the shelter and they loved it so much that the idea came to me in that moment to, um, to create a formalized program to reach them regularly uh, with a full complement of musicians, the way that the music was supposed to be heard, you know, chamber music as opposed to solo music. The idea of Music Kitchen was born and it's been 15 years now. We've, um, we've reached, well, we've presented over hundred concerts, 122 concerts and um, over 200 top classical music artists and reached an estimated 30,000 shelter clients. Another thing that I've been thinking about uh, with the formulation of the questions for this interview is that a common experience of working in the arts is just the fear of rejection and quote unquote, not making it. Do you ever have this fear? How do you get over it? And I guess like as a follow-up question, why do you think that you in particular, quote unquote, made it if that's even a relevant term? Well, I think, I, I think it's a really, really important thing. That's another thing we learn from the arts because there's so much, there can be so much rejection. I think you have to learn how to persevere through lots of no's. I think people who don't necessarily live from a passion or a dream, who only think that that life can has to start and end at a at a practical level, um, maybe don't push themselves in the same way. Uh, but that's one of the things that we learn to fight through fear, to fight through rejection, to fight through uncertainty, and uh, to persevere. Persevere. 
so I've, I've sure I've had plenty of disappointments and um, I, I give a lot of speeches and talks to, to people about how when somebody doesn't see the vision of something and they may try to discourage you, how you have to have your own sense of the vision of what you're trying to accomplish and you have to really be willing to go for it and believe in it and bring it into being. And there are a lot of no's along the way and they don't get easier. <laughs> you just learn to keep pushing through them. You know, I made a real decision to pursue the career at so many different levels. It was not the most, um, I don't know if I would say it was illogical, but it was, it's unlikely. I mean, there's so many odds. It's, there, it's against so many odds, I think, um, that I've had the career that I have and hopefully will continue to have. But you have to be, you have to believe in yourself. And you, as I, you know, sort of ties hand in hand to what I just said, you have to push through lots of doubt, lots of fear and lots of no's. So first, it would, there was a lot of difficulty for me in achieving an orchestral career. I went to a lot of auditions that didn't work out. And then I went to an audition that I won in a you know, major orchestra. I won the audition in three rounds and they didn't give me the job. That's not how it's supposed to work. A lot of people would have been, you know, I was, of course, really disappointed by that. I was really upset. A lot of people would have given up at that moment, but I didn't. Uh, the very next audition I won. And I played in that orchestra for 12 years, but I was, I decided I wanted to be a soloist. You know, I think a lot of people would have, including myself, it took me 12 years to gain the, the confidence to leave this job that I had, that I had worked so hard to get to be a soloist with all this doubt and uncertainty. But I remember something uh, that I heard Oprah say once, and I remember thinking, boy, I hope it's not true. She said, you have to leap you don't wait for the parachute to appear and then leap. The universe doesn't work that way. You have to leap first and then the parachute will appear. And I thought, my God, I hope that's not true because I'm not going to leave a perfectly good job without knowing exactly what I'm going to do. But I, I gave it a whole lot of thought about exactly how I thought it would work, what I hoped would work. And then I took that leap and all of these parachutes have, have come and, and amazing things have happened. And you know, I've created a career of, of my dreams. So I think that, um, I think that I, the violin has been in my soul since before I was born. I think there's something that is, uh, uniquely or, or intrinsically part of me. Um, I think that that is baked into my, uh, my existence here in this, in this life. And, and I think I've worked really hard and I think I've taken a lot of risks and despite all odds and despite so much doubt and fear and and disappointment push through that so i think all of those things are part of it and and most importantly i just have a passion um for uh, for music and playing the violin it's just who i am so i think that all those things together not not just any one of them but all those things together are sort of you know part of my story and why I'm here. So you talked earlier about what must have been a pretty crushing um, rejection, making it through three rounds and then still not making it. How did you like personally get over it? Just for like people out there that are also dealing with rejection and are also trying to figure out how to get past it. Well, the thing that made that even more difficult was it wasn't really, it wasn't, it wasn't actually an acceptable rejection. It's a, there's a process that's regulated for the entire industry for how auditions work. 
And that, what happened to me at that audition was actually a violation of that process. And it was explained to me that I could pursue it legally if I wanted to, but that it might actually cause me problems in my career. And I decided not to pursue it legally. I, I went, uh, I persevered through a lot of disappointment. I think it was, it was such a crushing blow as you described that I think I manifested a, um, a, a repetitive motion injury in response, you know, that lasted for several months. And I think it was just a manifestation of the tension and, and disappointment and not knowing how to get past that moment. But then I, you know, I picked myself up and dusted myself off. As I said, the very next audition that I won a couple uh, that, that I played a couple of months later, I won and um, nothing breeds success like success. <laughs> and you have to really uh, build on those things and, and believe in them when they're not yet there. You know, you have to believe they're coming. You have to believe you have to put in the work. That's the thing you have to put in the work, but then you have to take care of yourself and, and know that these, these disappointments, uh, they, they hurt and they're difficult, but that's where real courage is built, pushing past those things and don't giving your, you know, I know a lot of people who gave themselves a timeline. Well, if I don't get this by this date, if I don't get it by this birthday, or if I don't get it by this year, then I'm going to do something else. I do not believe in those kind of false deadlines. There were plenty of places where I would have reasonably believed this is just not going to work out the way I wanted it to. But if I had stopped there, I would have missed out on this, this incredible career that I've been building for myself. And I think one of the other things that I've been saying in my speeches is that I, I made a transition from working really hard and waiting for things, great things to happen, to working really hard and creating great things that happen. So I think, although I've, I've been part of a lot of organizations and I've won a lot of auditions to be in orchestras, I now am more of a, a music, you know, a soloist entrepreneur. And I create a lot of projects, including Music Kitchen. And so I think there are a lot of, a lot of elements to, to pushing through those disappointments and living the life that you create. So basically, to put it frankly, you do a lot of things and you're good at a lot of things. <laughs> but how do you know that the things that you're doing are because you love them or if they're internal pressures or external pressures? And is either of those inherently even better? I do believe that they are. there is something that is inherently better. I think that I, as much as I love the orchestral repertoire, I also think, I also now understand that that was pursuing a career in an orchestra was an external pressure that I thought was the only logical path. And once I realized that that was not something that I was willing to accept, that there are other paths, then I was, I was led by an internal pressure, if you will, which I think is, is inherently better to fulfill your own vision for yourself, as opposed to fulfilling an external created model that had, that takes little into account what you, what you actually really want to do. So I do think that they're inherently, it is inherently better to be, um, to be led by your own uh, interests and passions. So you also mentioned, like you compared it to your jump from orchestral work to soloist work. And you mentioned earlier about how 
I'm not gonna. I'm not sure if the difficult is the right word, but it was. I, I assume it was a very stressful jump because you said it was a very good job, and then you were just jumping into something completely unknown. What advice would you give to people that are similarly looking into a jump from external to internal pressures, despite the possible loss of something good that they might already have? Well, I think it's. I think it's important to to really look at it carefully. I didn't make a jump without doing my homework, I would say. But I do think that we live in a different kind of world than if you look at television, you know, from like the 50s, let's say, from another time. I think people used to get a job with a, with the big company, whatever the big company is, and they would stay with the big company for their for the rest of their lives. And it would take care of them and their families and they never, then they would retire and that was it. But I don't think we really live in that world anymore. I think we, we live in a more changing world. We live in a, in a world where people and their skills can be independently, you know, valuable in the marketplace and where people um, are free to think of great ideas and develop collaborations that bring those ideas into, into existence create their own companies and bring more value to the world and their, you know, bring value to themselves in the process. So I guess I would say I would, the advice that I would give is definitely do your homework, but I think we've seen in this time when, you know, we're, we're in the midst of a pandemic, hopefully coming to the end of it, but where everything has been shaken up and everything that we, you know, up was down and down is up and everything that we thought was solid is not solid. So for me, for example, it turns out that an orchestra job, which used to be uh, extrinsically, you know, or rather I should say externally described as the most stable kind of employment as a musician, where, you know, when this pandemic hit, I can't tell you how many orchestral musicians have not been paid a dime by their orchestra since this started. And they've had to sell their homes and figure out how their kids stay in college and do all that kind of thing. Whereas... Somebody like myself who made the very, very, very risky leap to, you know, to go independently. Um, I now have the business relationships that have sustained me during the pandemic as everything large has shut down. So I think, you know, when you, when you look at the world, there's a place for what you want to do. There, there's a place for who you are. There is a, there is a path for you to carve for yourself. It's and everything that you do on that on that process is part of it. You don't have to figure everything out today. It's an unfolding. It is a journey. Um, I also love the analogy of uh, I like to frequently think of Frederick Law Olmsted, who's the the man who designed Central Park. He uh, there's a great biography by Justin Martin of him uh, that talks about how you know Frederick Law Olmsted was his his family was wealthy enough. That as he was trying to find himself, you know, he had a, a father that is that supported him in various uh, various interests. But the fact of the matter is, he was a, a, a merchant seaman. He was a farmer, a farmer. He was an abolitionist. He was a writer. You know, he sort of tried out all of these different things. And the thing that I really love about that is the writer Justin Martin writes he couldn't have known it at the time. But every single one of those things that he tried went into what he eventually became as America's first landscape architect. So I would say that even as you are working 
to get to where you want to be and you think that this thing you're doing right now is not part of that vision, it will still serve you if you allow it, if you, if you, if you see it that way, if you build on it in that way, if you, if you take those skills that you're learning at that point and make them part of the journey, it, it, you know, it will, it will always be part of the journey, but I would say do your homework, but um, let every step of the process, you know, be embraced as part of your journey. I think it's pretty obvious that violin is not only a job, it's a passion, but how do you keep it a passion when it's like, basically what you do for a living? That's a really excellent question because it is, it is work. I mean, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of work involved. There's a lot of stress involved, but I think that the, I think that the music is the thing that, that calls me. It's the thing that calls me to be my best self. It's the thing that I enjoy doing when I'm at the top of my game, when I'm really, you know, put in all the work I enjoy since I was actually nine years old, that's the thing that has called me. All I've ever wanted is to be able to play the music the way I want to hear it. And that is the carrot that's always just in front of me. <laughs> it's, it's never quite right there long enough. It's always in front. So for me, that is the source of the passion. I just want to be able to play the music the way I want to hear it. And that's where the passion stays in the, the center of the story. So I think like a, my, what might be a problem with ha, ha, doing something that you doing something that you love for a job is just where the work life balance comes in. Because if you love what you do, then you'll want to do it every day. But when do you <laughs> overwork yourself? How, how do you reconcile this? Oh, that's a that is a question I have not found the answer to. <laughs> <laughs> I think musicians routinely mess up the work life balance equation. I know some people that I think do that really well. And they're constantly out doing in the world, doing, doing fun things. Um, but I'm not sure I'm the best one at that, <laughs> that work-life balance. But at the same time, you know, there's so much about, I'm not wasting my time because I'm doing something that I want to do with my life. So I think that, um, you know, time spent with that is, is definitely time that I enjoy, but I think it's also important to have, to freshen one's mind by, you know, taking a break, you know, enjoying nature and taking walks outside and all of that kind of thing. We also mentioned the fact that you speak eight languages. Like, if you don't mind, could you tell us what, what languages those are and how you have the patience for that? How you have the patience (laughs) for this? I, well, first of all, they're not all fluent and I I should just say (laughs) full disclosure on that. I think I'm (laughs) functional in all and, and fluent in, in, in some to varying degrees. I think uh, I, I thought that I was, I am a flank, a Francophile, I should just say I'm a, I'm a total Francophile. And that started in high school. And I thought I was only a Francophile. We actually had some very close family friends who were German when I was in high school. And it would have been fantastic if I had discovered my, um, my passion for learning German at that time, but I hated German at that time. And it didn't quite, you know, so I thought I was a Francophile. I absorbed everything French beyond, um, you know, beyond the classroom, I would watch movies in French. I would, uh, you know, I eventually started dreaming in French, which I knew was a really great sign <laughs> for a while there. And uh, I thought that was it. And then, you know, after four years of conservatory and, you know, or I should say six with my master's degree, when I moved, when I, when I finished my degree and, and was living in New York, 
all of that German leader that we had studied, the Schubert leader and the, and the Wagner operas and whatnot had gotten into my consciousness. And suddenly now I, I had to learn German. But I think actually, no, I should back up. I think when I was doing my master's, I was surrounded by so many Russian friends and colleagues that that was what came next. And I started studying Russian on my own. And uh, I was just, I had just decided to audit a class just to see if I wanted to take that class. And I was really pleased when the, when the professor said to me that I was actually ahead of the class with what I had done on my own. So I felt really good about that. But then I learned I was moving to Spain. So I had to drop Russian and suddenly start uh, cramming Spanish. And so I did that and I moved to Spain for just under a year. And uh, while I was back in New York, I just, this obsession with German was starting to take me over. And so I started taking an occasional summer class uh, at NYU's Deutsches Haus. And that became a kind of an on again, off again endeavor. I somehow started, I think because of the the, the history that I'd had at a conservatory studying Schubert Lieder and, and opera, German opera and that sort of thing, I somehow tested into level five, which was really interesting because it's it's a blessing and a curse, honestly, because I never had a beginning language course in German. So it made me always feel a little bit, you know, a little bit behind the eight ball to just start at level five, you know? So I don't know, that that's something that, that has always been there. So let's see, after that, I was going on tour to Japan and I decided, you know, Japanese is not a phonetic language. I need to decide, am I going to, do I want to be able to read when I get there or do I want to be able to speak? And I decided I need to be able to speak when I, when I get there. So I crammed Japanese and, uh, was functional enough to, you know, to get around and, and, uh, and, you know, to, uh, to, to tell the pharmacist that what my symptoms were when I immediately caught a cold upon landing in Tokyo and, and, uh, to, to navigate and get around and, and see the place and all that. And let's see what came next. And I think maybe somewhere in there was, uh, actually before Spanish, I skipped one before Spanish. I spent a summer in Italy playing in this Boleto festival. So I decided I'm definitely not spending the summer in Italy without being able to speak. So I learned Italian enough to get around. And uh, what comes after that? So then we have Japanese. Two years ago, I went to the Ukraine and I decided I was thinking, oh, I'm going to get to use my Russian. I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I what am I thinking? Of course, I'm not going to go to the Ukraine and and uh, insult these people <laughs> speaking Russian. So I was like, I have absolutely no idea what Ukrainian is like, but I need to learn some <laughs> before I get there so that I can explain to the audience who I am, wh- you know, why I'm there, uh, what was my role on Broadway, because I was there to play, um, you know, a Fiddler on the Roof uh, for the film, the, the uh, documentary that I'm featured in. So anyway, that's the story behind the, the and of course, English is first. So that's the story <laughs> behind my language. <laughs> So thank you again for agreeing to talk with me about leadership today. I do have a few more questions for you, or basically one more question. Mm -hmm. So what podcasts or books do you recommend in order to become a better leader? And what thought leaders do you follow on social media or the news? Oh, gosh, so many, so many people. I can't even really think. Brittany Packnett Cunningham is someone I enjoy listening to. Uh, ta Coates, I read his, his book, Between the World and Me. I love Jonathan Capehart's writing in the Washington Post. Uh, I, I read a lot of the Washington Post. Um, I'm a New Yorker. I love the New York Times. 
but I think I've been reading a lot more of the Washington Post these days. I follow quite a lot of politics and um, this is a really, and, and also just social justice movements. And this is a, a really important time, I think, um, for us to get some of this stuff right. So I have been thoroughly absorbed in some of that, but then I also am in a time of, of you know, clearing and cleansing and uh, <laughs> taking a little bit of a break from, from some of it as well. But I, I'm a big... I'm a big reader. I appreciate journalism, journalism, and I'm also a writer myself. So I wrote a chapter um, during the pandemic. I think just this time last year, or no, a little bit later in the summer of 2020, I contributed a chapter for a book called Music and Human Rights that's going to be um, published by Rutledge Press in the fall. So thank you again for agreeing to talk to me. Um... Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to speak with you, Kai. On behalf of everyone at the Basito Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank the podcast team, 89.5 FM WSOU for allowing us to use their facilities, and you for listening. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership and on Twitter at SHU Leadership. At the Seton Hall Basino Leadership Institute, we make leaders better.